This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. All right, everyone. Welcome back to a very, very, very special episode of Fans on the Run. You know, I, I'm going to break the fourth wall. I've been advised not to break the fourth wall several times, but, you know, I, I cannot stress enough how honored I am to have our next guest on the show. He's a writer, reporter, author, and the only journalist to complete the entire North American tour with the Beatles in 1964, and he was present when the Beatles met Elvis months later. It is my absolute honor to welcome to the show... Ivor Davis. Ivor, how are you? Ethan, I'm doing very well, happily. Thank heavens I have my bicycle and I have a beach nearby so I can jog and enjoy enjoy a little bit of exercise and, and not uh, and practice long, uh, long distance uh, socialing, socializing like I'm doing with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to ask, how's the weather down there? Well, the weather in my town, which is a seaside town 60 miles from Los Angeles, is overcast, but in about two hours it will clear up. And I hate to tell you if you're in bad weather, which I'm sure you're not, I, I, it will be a Are you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of gray and gloomy. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you the sun will come out, not tomorrow, but this afternoon. Remember that song, the sun will come out tomorrow. Yeah. Here's a quick test. Which, which musical... Sorry, I know that we're not talking about... What musical is The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow? Uh, is is it all about of About a little girl. Like, oh, no, no, Annie. Girl. Annie. Annie, right. Yeah. Annie. The thing as is... As long as he needs me. I mean, I, you know, this is, this is my generation. Uh, Oliver was a good musical, by the way. That won an Oscar back in the time when they gave um, Oscars to musicals. Anyway, I'm getting off path. Well, Go ahead. the thing is with the show, there is no path. That's we're ba- basically able to talk about whatever we want with Good. a focus on the Beatles. But, you know, if you want to talk about anything, I'd be up for it. Good. OK. So nice weather in California. It is. The sun will come out tomorrow. So th- I was doing a little bit of research. I already knew who you were. I was already very familiar, you know, fan of your book and you know, I was trying to come up with uh, questions to ask you. And I saw this uh, thing on your website where you were interviewing yourself. And I thought, oh, damn it. He's asking all the questions I was going to ask him. He's already interviewed himself. So I had to come up with new questions, which I think are a little out of the box or outside of the box. Probably. Well, that's okay, but let, let me just interrupt you one second because we can interrupt each other. Yes. When I did that as as a, as a lark, as for fun, yeah. me me interviewing me, I think, you know, after about 11 seconds, you realize that the guy in the shirt is the same guy as the guy in the jacket. Is it? But when I did it, when I did it, my, my, my son said, hey, Dad, that, that's lame. And yet I've received so much feedback from people who enjoy the sense of humor. So I'm glad you saw it. And I'm glad you quickly realized it was me talking to me. Anyway, I I thought it was hilarious. But then I realized he's already asking himself all the questions I was going to ask him. And so I I got some other questions together, which 
I'm sure you've been asked like so many questions about the Beatles over the years that some of them may get stale. So, and some of these will probably be the stale ones, but you know, it's a new day. Go for it. How did you first hear about the Beatles? Well, it wasn't, had nothing to do with what Ken Womack, your previous guest, said. <laughs> I used to watch a cartoon show and suddenly they canceled the cartoon show and I got stuck with these funny characters called the Beatles. Mm-hmm. No. Sorry, Ken. I've got a different story. My story is very, very simply this. Um, uh, you, can you still hear me? Because I get, I see my sister is trying to call me from England, but don't worry about it. I'm going to decline and go back to you. I can still hear anyway. you. Okay, good. So here's how I got my involvement with the Beatles. I was a foreign correspondent for the London Daily Express, which was a large London newspaper um, in the days when people read newspapers. Does it which still they don't exist, do now. the Daily Express? Well, um, I, I think if you comb very deeply from Toronto to Tel Aviv, you might find people reading a few newspapers. Mm-hmm. But but it sometimes happens. So this newspaper, the London Daily Express, appointed me West Coast correspondent for them, mm-hmm. which meant that I would cover every story under the sun in my hemisphere. Mm-hmm. So one day I got a call from my foreign editor who said, the boys are coming to America tomorrow. Get on a plane to San Francisco. Join them and write about them. Tell us what's going on. And you will also write the column for one of the group, George Harrison. And I thought for a second, I thought, could he be talking about the Beatles? And he was. And the only thing, Ethan, the only thing I knew about the Beatles then, Mm -hmm. because you've got to realize back in the 20th century, they didn't have the Internet. Communications was not as sophisticated as it is today. Mm -hmm. I had seen happily in February of 1964, the Beatles storm on stage in New York City for a guy called Ed Sullivan. Now, Ed Sullivan, back in those uh, uh, sort of cobwebby days, was the king of entertainment on television. He had a show that everybody watched Mm -hmm. on a Sunday night. Every Sunday night on CBS. Exactly. And the funny thing about Ed was, I mean, he was a bit like a traffic cop. He didn't have much natural ability. And he, you know, he was he was kind of a wooden guy. And yet everybody wanted to be on his show. And the Beatles wanted to be on his show. And I learned from Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, that Brian had flown to New York several months earlier to get on, to persuade Ed that he wanted to put his Beatles on the show. <laughs> so jumping back to... August of 1964, I jumped on a plane and I landed in San Francisco and I went up to the Beatles Hotel and I always like to say, what a ticket to ride I found myself on because it was unbelievable. I I appreciate the pun. Thank you. So I want to ask you about what those first few days of traveling with the Beatles felt like, you know, the first maybe 72 hours? Well, first of all, I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. 
But I can tell you that I, I, I knew something strange was happening because when I arrived at the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco on that day, the first day, there were like about 1,000 or 1,500 or 2,000 girls outside screaming. <laughs> and I thought, what the heck's going on here? I fought my way through there. I managed to get into the hotel. They said, the, the rooms are full up. We, we can't put you up. I said, I'm, magic words, I'm with the Beatles. Oh, sir. So they sent me up to meet Derek Taylor. Mm-hmm. And Derek Taylor was their brilliant, talented press officer. We all love and a Derek friend Taylor. Der- Derek Taylor. If you, if you look at Derek Taylor on YouTube, he has a sharp Liverpool wit. The Beatles loved him, and he loved the Beatles. So Derek was my passport, and Derek introduced me to the Beatles, and they kind of, actually, they were jet-lagged. They were watching themselves arrive on television on a on a color TV in their suite. Color TV? Uh, color TV, yeah. Uh, don't forget, back in 64, color TV in England was pretty rare. Mm-hmm. So they loved it. They saw themselves arriving at San Francisco, Derek said, boys, I want you to meet Ivor. And the great welcome I got was uh, a grunt. They grunted, hello, and they turned back to the TV. I, I, I mean, I appreciate that I didn't get a, a warm hug or any, anything like that. He didn't know me. They thought, who the heck is this guy? <laughs> but things improved because as I got to know them and I was trapped with them in hotels, and trapped with them in, in, in a limousine. I was in limousine number two. They were in limousine number one, going from airport to venue to venue to press conference to press conference to hotel. Um, we got to know each other. And in a way, after two or three days, the Beatles warmed to me. They, they knew they were stuck with me mm-hmm. for the duration of five weeks. And because they couldn't leave their hotel room, Ethan, they were stuck with me and I was stuck with them and I could go out. They could not go out if they went out of their hotel room. Um, have you ever seen rock stars torn to pieces? Well, it was it's an ugly scene, believe me. Fortunately, the Beatles were not torn to pieces, mm-hmm. but they survived the trip. So that was how my first experience with the Beatles was, a kind of a, 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 a cold start, but it warmed up and we became fairly close because not only did we travel in limousine one limousine two uh, i went to all their press conferences and i also had a ticket a seat on their private a chartered jet all over the, all over america and, and and into canada into toronto we went to toronto i, I was going to ask about that do you have any uh memories of the uh canadian stops of the 64 tour well, I mean, what I do remember, which is which it shows you how ridiculous things were. So we arrived in Toronto. I forget the exact date. It, it's in my book, but uh, but you know, after all these years, I can't remember the exact date. Mm-hmm. So we have a press conference ten minutes after we arrive, and the guy from the Toronto Globe and Mail, mm-hmm. I forget his name, jumps up and says, "I mean, they've been the Beatles have been in Toronto for ten minutes." Mm-hmm. And this guy from the Toronto Globe and Mail jumps up and says, Paul, what do you think of our Toronto Canadian women? Well, come on. And, of course, Paul, in his diplomatic way, said, oh, they're beautiful. They're, mm-hmm. We can't wait to meet them. I mean, that was the kind of stuff that the Beatles were confronted with. They'd been, they'd been 
in Canadian on Canadian turf for 10 minutes and they were asked to evaluate the talented, the beauty of, um, of Canadian women. So that was the sort of insanity that they that they were faced with and it happened everywhere. Same silly questions. You know, how do you find America? George says you turn left at Greenland. You know, that sort of yeah. comedy. And I want to tell you, sorry to go on so much, but at those press conferences, I sat watching and I was so bowled over by the wit and the talent of, of the comedy of the Beatles because they could be asked the same question in the same like, 24 hours later, they were witty. They finished each other's sentences. They were like a kind of a combined unit mm -hmm. who could who could play off of each other. Like and they did it very well. Monster. And they had, yes, four-headed monster. That's a good way of putting it. But a nice four-headed monster. Oh, a very nice. Talented, a, a, a funny four-headed monster. So there you are. There you go. What do you think of the Toronto women? And and, and this is the way they handled it. Well, that that's handling it pretty well. There was uh, something that happened in... I, I'm speaking... You know, I have a particular interest in the Canadian part of the tour. Uh, yeah. There was an incident in Montreal. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know well, what I'm talking yeah, I must, about. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So so don't forget the... I think it was a separatist movement was quite active yes. then. And I remember this because... When we got in there, there was a moment, seriously, of alarm because Ringo got a threat. I don't know if that's what you're referring to. Yes. And they said, they said, somebody said, we're going to get that Jew, Ringo. Now, first of all, Ringo was not Jewish. <laughs> and, and, and yet the, the local gendarmes in, in Montreal took the threat seriously and I remember that concert because Ringo went out there and kind of tried to hide under his cymbals and under his drum. So then we had this crazy concert in Montreal with with um, police uh, crouching around the, the foot of the stage, keeping an eye on Ringo if somebody should jump up and kidnap him. I mean, it's crazy, yeah. I know. Um, and Ringo, a bit nervous, very nervous, trying to look unobtrusive, sitting on a stage in front of thousands of people. And the concert, well, the concert, I think, lasted a little bit less than they normally lasted. And I'm going to ask you this question because I love to ask this question to people, uh, um, whatever age, whatever generation. Ethan, how long do you think the Beatles played in Toronto, Montreal, and other cities in 1964. About, Guess. about half an hour. Yes, you're right. Very good. Half an hour and sometimes less. Yeah. And because they got away with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did their 10 songs. The 10 songs they did. And as soon as they finished, as soon as they started singing Long Tall Sally, I knew that was the signature of Get Out of the Stadium, Ivor and get into the limousine because in three minutes, the Beatles will be in the limousine number one and you will be off like gangbusters out of the stadium. <laughs> Excuse me. So that was, that was it. They had, they paid short. Uh, uh, there were great warm up acts before the Jackie to Shannon, mm -hmm. the righteous brothers oh. played warm up. 
But nobody wanted to hear Jackie DeShannon and nobody wanted the Righteous Brothers or Clarence Frogman Henry. That if that you've is, ever heard of him. I haven't heard of him, but that is that is a name. Yes. So but but they wanted all the girls wanted, all because they were ninety-eight percent women, young women, mm-hmm. girls, all they wanted was to see the Beatles. They they didn't even want to hear the music. Mm-hmm. Because I know you didn't ask me this, but I want to tell you, I sat in the front row at every concert. <laughs> and as soon as the Beatles started singing, you couldn't hear them because the girls screamed from start to finish. And I couldn't hear them. I mean, I, I kid that I don't even know, uh, you know, what the, uh, the Beatles said, I want to hold you or whatever. And I never heard the word hand, uh, but apparently that's what they sang. But you couldn't hear it because the girls were screaming. Allegedly, they sang, I want to hold your hand. Allegedly, I'm glad you used that word. I believe that's so. Yes. I, I cannot speak with 100% authority here. Yeah. But if you like, I'll just check it out on my computer. Oh, here we go. Just checked it. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I want to hear, um, were there any moments on the tour? Because I know it was, it was very, very crazy and very hectic. <laughs> um, were there any moments where you thought, I am going to die? There this is so crazy. Like you um, thought you were going to be put in harm's way with all the screaming girls. Um, yes, there was one particular incident when, when what happened was because it was, it was, a da- it, was it was dangerous to life and limb of the Beatles. They often left in a uh, armored truck or a meat truck mm-hmm. or a laundry van or, even one time in a helicopter. Yeah. And and I was stuck in the bloody limousine and it had kind of, uh, you know, not painted windows, whether they call them darkened windows, uh, whatever the phrase is, you know, the limos yeah. don't have uh, tinted windows. And because the Beatles had left uh, in an armoured truck at that concert, the girls outside thought me sitting in a limousine, I was a Beatle. Well, I mean, if you see me now, you would never recognize me as a Beatle. And then even back then when I was much younger, uh, nobody would mistake me for a Beatle. <laughs> I don't even have a Liverpudlian accent. <laughs> so the girls, I want to tell you, about 15 of them started shaking the limousine I was sitting in. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I want to tell you, 15 to 20 girls in their teens can actually turn a limousine over and the limousine shook shake rattle and roll and i was scared and i and i you know i said to the driver wind the window down and i'll tell them i'm not a beetle look at me but fortunately before he did that uh the driver managed to nose his way out of uh, the girls kind of fell off like they were like clung to the limousine like limpet mines and they shook it. And I, sh- and I kind of was shaking uh, and we managed to get out of it. So that was seriously, I mean, it's funny to tell it yeah. now, but, but then it must've been it wasn't. terrifying. Well, you could see and you can understand why John Paul George and Ringo uh, came up with all these little the tricks to avoid their fans mm-hmm. Because if they, I mean, I told you a little bit earlier, when they were stuck in their hotel rooms, they couldn't leave mm-hmm. because they knew if they'd left, 
uh, they would have been torn from limb to limb, affectionately torn from limb for limb. Yes. But, you know, when that happens, affection or not, you know, you can be severely damaged. Yes. Your limbs can be. Anyway, so, so that was my example of, oh, my God. And I saw it happen, um, you know, when the Beatles arrived at the, a hotel and we used to go in the back door. And once we went in the front door and, they, and the girls, the girls uh, attacked us as we were moving in and there was a guy called George Harrison who was not the George Harrison that we know. He was a, um, a columnist for the Liverpool Echo newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they grabbed his suitcase because it said George Harrison on it and they ripped it open. And all his underwear and shirts and stuff fell on the sidewalk and the girls kind of leapt upon it like hungry um, wolves. I mean, it was crazy. Oh. And poor George, poor George finally retrieved his underwear and, and, and his suitcase and was really shaken up. So, it, you know, it shows you the passion of the fans could be terrific and it could also be threatening. I want to ask you on that tour, what was your uh, relationship with not just the Beatles, but uh, Brian Epstein, uh, Neil Aspinall, Derek Taylor, uh, Mal Evans, the other yeah. ones? Well, well, um, my relationship with Derek was terrific because Derek used to work uh, as a showbiz writer for my the newspaper I was writing for. So we had an immediate um, friendship. And then Derek, when he left the Beatles after fighting with Brian Epstein came to California and we, we hooked up again and he came to my wedding, him and his wife, Joan. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, as most of your listeners know, Derek died quite a few years ago, mm-hmm. but Joan is still around with Derek's family in England. So Derek and I were on great terms. I got friendly with Mal and Neil and they were the, they were what we would, would call in, um, in the East end of London, where I grew up schleppers. They were the ones that, lifted the bags and they had the money and when that john wanted some money he'd ask neil or mal they were nice guys they were doing the roadies the roadies they were the roadies yeah and don't forget back in the 64 65 66 the sound systems in the stadiums were appalling Mm -hmm. and 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 they also brought out the sound system and plugged them in sometimes i mean it's kind of a joke when you think of it a little sound a plug-in sound system but anyway, so they were terrific. And then I liked Brian Epstein. Um, there were two little connections with Brian Epstein. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got to realize that he was kind of a shy guy, and yet he wasn't. Mm-hmm. And he was the guy that had taken them from the grubby German nightclubs to uh, clean them up, got the haircuts, got the suits made, and uh, told them to stop smoking and swearing on stage. He was the kind of image creator and they respected him as much as they could. And uh, and he and I got along very well for two reasons. Number one, uh, we were both Jewish in, in England after World War Two, mm-hmm. which kind of made us a bit separate. And number three and number two was that we both had been conscripted into the British Army, um, which was what used to be called national service. Yeah. National service was, you had to go into the army. Brian was, he hated it. He was gay. He was gay in a time when homosexuality, believe it or not. Was illegal. Was illegal, right. I mean, that was the most, when you think of it today, you say, what? But Brian, Brian was uh, openly gay, but yet it was a big secret. 
uh, the Beatles used to take the mickey out of him for that. It's another story. Um, but so so when we when we talk, Brian and I, and I must tell you the story, uh, which is which is to do with Brian being Jewish, was that Derek called me one day, and it, we, we were in New Orleans, and he said he knew that I was Jewish, and he said Brian would like to go to a synagogue mm-hmm. on Yom Kippur, which is a, the Day yes. of Atonement, the holiest day. And um, so I arranged for Brian to go to a synagogue with me. And then on the day, on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement arrived, Brian didn't show. And Derek said, well, he had to go to New York. Anyway, so so there was a little connection there. I mean, I liked him, but he was the kind of headmaster of the Beatles. Mm-hmm. He was the one that would say, John, you had your hands in your pockets at the press conference. John, don't swear. John, take your hands out your pockets. So, I mean, he was he was their headmaster. But, you know, they respected him and they, you know, and, and, and when Brian died, we I knew, um, everybody knew that the Beatles would break up. But that's another, we're moving too far ahead. But anyway, that, that was the the connection with the the roadies and with Brian. Is it true that that 64 tour was as, let's say, debaucherous as it has been told? Well, it depends what your definition of debauchery is. And debauchery, actually, I always think of of Vikings uh, rampaging through villages back in the early centuries. I wouldn't. I wouldn't actually call it debauchery, but you know, look, the Beatles were young, uh, healthy, young men with with active libidos, mm-hmm. and and to be honest with you, um, a lot of young women wanted to do more than just hold their hand. Um, I get what you so mean. I get what you mean. You then. get what I mean. So I'm I'm being very delicate here, but but you know, I'm going to tell you one very quick story, which is true, and I. And, and, and when I saw it, I didn't believe it. <laughs> we were in Atlantic City, and um, the, the promoter of the show there wanted to give the Beatles a special treat. <laughs> so that night, we all went to the hotel we were staying in. I forget the name of it at the, at the moment. <laughs> and we had a private screening of A Hard Day's Night, their first movie. Well, the Beatles had seen the movie. <laughs> And just before the lights went down, the promoter, I forget his name, walked in the room and behind him there were like 10 young women in various states of dress and undress. And before our very eyes, this guy said to John, Paul, George and Ringo, take your pick. I mean, I mean, you, you can't believe that. I wouldn't believe it, but I was there. And believe me, it happened. So the Beatles thought, wow, and you, you know, were in we're the gonna, room. Gonna... I was in the room. Yeah, we, we were in the room. I mean, we were in the room ready to see the movie. Did you get your pick? And I did not get my pick because I was there to see the movie and I had to see the movie. You yeah. know, unfortunately, it's a great unfortunately, movie. The... it is a great movie. Even today, it's a great movie. And it's very, very appropriate because it's, it, it, it shows you how insane things were. Mm-hmm. So to cut a long story short, I stayed and watched the movie. The Beatles actually, who did, couldn't believe themselves, uh, grabbed the hand of the young lady they wanted to spend the next whatever t- time with. They left the room. 
when the lights came on at the end of the movie, the Beatles were back, sitting in the back seats, and some of the young ladies were still there, and they were all enjoying the movie. So what happened, I can't tell you, but that was a scene I witnessed myself. And when Brian came back and heard about this, he was not impressed. So did they leave the room with the ladies or did they stay? They did leave the room with the ladies. They left the room. They actually, uh, they all went and and it was like, um, and they grabbed the hand of the maiden of choice Mm -hmm. and they all sort of walked uh, nicely out of the room. And then, as I said, um, I stayed in the in, in the room to see the movie. The Beatles did what they did. And then when the lights came up, they were all back in there watching the movie. I mean, I'm sure they went for afternoon tea, really. But, you know, you can use your own yes. imagination. Of course it was afternoon tea. What Exactly. It couldn't have been anything else, you know? <clears throat> Nothing else. We, we know that. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean, that was a situation where, I mean, the, the, the promoter decided that he was going to uh, be Mr. Big Heart. And Brian did decided he didn't like the guy being so big hearted. Anyway, not with his boys. Yeah. So I want to ask you um, about the first time the Beatles met Bob Dylan. Yeah. Well, I mean, the first time they met Bob Dylan, there's been a little controversy about this, but I can tell you. Well, I know there's been some I w- myth. There's myth. Now they said they said they got stoned with Bob Dylan at the um, the, the, the um, famous hotel in New York, whose name escaped me for a minute, um, where they were staying during the New York in the middle of the tour. But I can tell you this: at the end of the tour, right at the end of the 1964 tour, I was at the uh, uh, the Idlewild Inn, which was named Idlewild Inn because the airport at the time was called Idlewild. Mm-hmm. And then it would change to Kennedy at a kind of a, a middle of middle class motel. Mm-hmm. And they were near the airport because the next day they were leaving to go back to England at the end of the tour. The night before they had done a concert at the Paramount Theater in downtown, uh, downtown New York for charity. Mm-hmm. I went to the farewell party. And when I was at the Idlewild Inn, where we all stayed, I saw this scruffy looking fellow with a backpack. And a, and, and a scruffy beard. And I said, hey, what's Bob Dylan doing here? And Bob Dylan uh, was doing here was going to party with the Beatles. And so I sat in the outer room having a drink at Brian Epstein's expense. Mm-hmm. And Brian Epstein was in the room with the Beatles. And somebody had placed um, wet towels uh, at the foot of the door leading to the room that the Beatles and Bob Dylan were there. Mm-hmm. But I sat there and, and smelt uh, an odor that I recognized. And when the, after about an hour, when the doors opened, I looked inside and there was Ringo lying on the floor giggling. Mm-hmm. Um, the Beatles were in a very mellow mood and Bob Dylan was saying goodbye. And I kind of ascertained that um, this was where Bob had uh, introduced them to a high grade of marijuana. Okay. Now there were many, there, yeah, there were many stories that came out after this, and one of them that I was told by a very informed source within in the room mm-hmm. was that Bob Dylan showed up, and out of his backpack he took some fat marijuana cigarettes, mm-hmm. heavily rolled. <clears throat> I wasn't into marijuana that much, so I, so apparently he gave the marijuana cigarette, which is a kind of like a little sausage, mm-hmm. 
a mini sausage to Ringo to smoke. And Ringo, not knowing uh, the protocol for um, marijuana parties, smoked the whole thing. He smoked the whole himself. joint. Yeah, yeah. He he didn't realize that the you know in that as as obviously some people knew, you do not smoke the whole joint. You take three puffs or two puffs and you pass it on to the next person. Ringo thought it was for him, and as a result, Ringo ended up on the floor giggling. And that was the uh, Bob Dylan adventure with the Beatles. And uh, and believe it or not, uh, I mean, although the Beatles in Germany, uh, the Reaper Bauman in the red light district took drugs mm-hmm. to keep awake, they weren't really that familiar with marijuana until Mr. Dylan gave them a high-grade cigarette to try in uh, New York City back in 1964. And speaking of another famous meeting... Uh, was this in 64 or 65 when they met uh, Elvis? They met, they wanted to meet Brian Epstein and and Colonel Tom Parker, who was the manager yeah. of, of Elvis, got together in Beverly Hills in 1964 and tried to arrange for Elvis to meet the Beatles. Now, Elvis was very busy doing three movies a year and also performing in Las Vegas. And the Beatles were busy racing around the country on their American tour. So in 1964, although Brian and Parker had got together in the Beverly Hills Hotel to talk about it, it wasn't until 65 on their second tour of America that finally they came together. Mm-hmm. Now, now you've got to realize that John had told me that he was a great fan of Elvis and, and the Beatles liked Elvis. I mean, John said, he used to listen to Elvis' Heartbreak Hotel and ha- Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog and all those songs on Radio Luxembourg, which was a radio station. <laughs> pirate radio. We listened to a pirate radio in when we, growing up in England, we all listened to Radio Luxembourg because there was no good rock and roll. No. So they were fans of Elvis. They wanted to meet him. And finally, I got a call from Mal who said, uh, it's going to happen. Now, what I didn't realize was that um, for some reason, Brian Epstein said, no pictures, no recordings, no journalists. Well, uh, I guess being part of the inner circle, which was great, I was able to, uh, I mean, that was why I got in there. And they said, don't take any notes, don't interview Elvis, anything like that. And then, so that one night in August of 1965, I showed up at the Elvis mansion, uh, the Beatles, you know, we, we went to the, the Beatles rented house. We had, a, again, in the limousine number two, they were Beatles in limousine number one. They all took off to Elvis's house. When they got there, there were like about a hundred girls. I don't know how they knew about it. Mm-hmm. The Beatles went inside. And I went inside with them. <clears throat> I want to tell you, it was, it was kind of a, a, a gaudily decorated house. And there sitting on a couch, surrounded by guys who were obviously the Memphis Mafia, yeah. was, the, was a guy who looked like Elvis, except he had um, like sort of nine-inch sideburns that looked as though they'd been pasted on. Yeah. And indeed, when I looked closely, it was Elvis. Now, the problem was that nobody, if you can believe this, nobody had the sense to introduce each other. So they sat around for 10, 15 minutes 
looking at each other while Elvis flashed his, his remote control on a giant, um, a giant television screen that was all of about 16 inches. Mm -hmm. Finally, finally, would you believe, um, Elvis jumped up and said, I'm going to bed. Uh, well, it was, it was, it broke the ice and the Beatles and him started to play because Elvis said, I thought you'd come here to jam. Well, they did play. Ringo, unfortunately, didn't have any drums. They brought out guitars. They played, uh, they played Elvis songs. They played um, uh, um, other, other, a few other songs, um, uh, maybe Roll Over Beethoven, some of the black uh, uh, singers. I've forgotten the names of the, of the singers. They didn't play any but, Beatles songs, did they? Exactly. They did not play a single Beatles song. And that broke the ice, playing for 15 minutes or so. Ringo was in the other room playing snooker, billiards, pool, whatever you call it. Uh, he would call it snooker. They would call it pool. And they they finally broke the ice. They started talking. I remember Elvis said they was he was scared of flying. The Beatles said they were scared of flying. I think it, um, what had happened, oh, I would say, uh, not long before, was that Buddy Holly died in the plane crash yeah. and other other rockers uh, the... uh, severely hurt. So. So that was that broke the ice. It was and the Valens only thing I do, the other, opera, I think. <laughs> yes, um, uh, and, and there was a young girl with a hair piled high, who turned out to be Priscilla. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I interviewed Priscilla a few years later, and she remembered meeting the Beatles at Elvis's house. But that's another story. And and then they they finally left, and they said they would get together again, but they never did. And the only thing I will add to this, Ethan, is this. You've got to remember that Elvis was jealous of the Beatles. Yes. He was jealous because he was king of the hit parade. And then all of a sudden, these Liverpool interlopers came along and knocked him off the perch. Yeah, stole his crown. And also, exactly. So there was that element, the under undercurrent of um, resentment. And the other thing was, of course, that Elvis made all these uh, Mickey Mouse or not Mickey Mouse movies, these yeah. these copycat cookie cutter movies. They're all the yeah. same, different leading lady. He made three movies a year and the Beatles come along with a hard day's night and it's a hit. Yeah. So and it's good. So he exactly. And you can watch it today, as I will be doing in a few months and talking about it. And you can enjoy it, and it holds up. So all those elements added up to Elvis and the Beatles never got together again. Uh, and um, I, I'll add one final note. Mm -hmm. When the Beatles came out, and, and the next day we asked them, well, what did you think? They were a little bit reserved. I mean, they told a guy called Larry Kane, mm -hmm. and I heard Larry's interviews. Oh, it was okay. They were, they were sort of underwhelmed. Yeah. 15 years later, look at the anthology, the Beatles anthology, and they've kind of they've kind of sweetened up their comments. What a great thing it was, how wonderful it was. But 24 hours after they met Elvis, they were not too overwhelmed. Yeah. I'm going to ask you some last few questions about the Beatles. Um, uh but they're kind of general questions about the Beatles. Because um, after, you know, you got off 
was it just the 64 tour or was it also the 65? Yeah, well, here's the thing. I covered every day, every step of the way on the 64 tour. On the 65 tour and the 66 tour, my London office, uh, my editor said, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to talk what went on um, uh, in 64. So keep an eye on the boys when they're in L.A., go with them because I was based in L.A. So I went to their parties and I went on a few. I went to the Hollywood Bowl again. But but um, they kind of they kind of diminished, not necessarily in popularity, but two things happened. One, by the end of the, their touring days in America, John was um, not persona non grata, but he made that great comment. Yeah. Everybody knows. You, you can tell me. Yeah. We're more popular so, than Jesus so- now. Very good. I, I, you know, I want to say I'm impressed with your Liverpool accent. Uh, really? Really? Yeah. Like, do, do that again for me, would you? I'm trying to remember the, the rest of the quote. It's like, Christianity will go. It'll vanish and shrink. So like, I don't know which will go first. Rock and roll or Christianity. Or something like that. That's me applauding. I want to tell you, that's very good. Because I'm from England and I cannot, for the hell of it, do a Liverpool accent. Oh. I can do a Scottish accent, an Irish accent, a Welsh accent, not a Liverpool oh. accent. So how did you do so well? The thing is with the Beatles, it's they don't sound terribly scouse. You know, I, I'm doing basically an impression of what I heard on A Hard Day's Night and Help, yeah. all that kind of stuff. But, you know, Liverpool, they talk like this, you know, kind of. Like, they, yeah, the Beatles do. are from here, you know. Never heard of them. That very good. that kind of that's to me what the Liverpool accent is. But you, you've done a great you've done a great job. That's terrific. You don't have to lie, Ivor. No, I'm not. I, I want to tell you. I look. I cannot do a Liverpool accent, and you have just done it. Boom. Well done. I I really appreciate your compliment. Um, uh, you brought up the Hollywood Bowl shows. What what was it like? Because they've been kind of immortalized in these uh, albums, the Beatles Live at the Hollywood Bowl. But what was it like to be there and be kind of behind the scenes? Well, um, the Hollywood Bowl was in my neck of the woods because I lived like 10 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed going to the Hollywood Bowl, but and I'd been to the Hollywood Bowl for other concerts. But what was so stunning was I remember vividly uh, the first time at the Hollywood Bowl. The, the Hollywood Bowl in those days had a kind of artificial swimming pool in front of the stage. Uh, it was a fountain, but it was a body of water. And what I remember about that was once the Beatles started to perform, several young women tried to swim <laughs> to them. And it was crazy. They jumped in this water and they they swam and the security guys fished them out. And the thing was, I thought to myself, why would they want to swim to the Beatles? Because if they got to the Beatles and they got hold of George or Paul on the guitar, they could have electrocuted themselves. Yeah. And I mean, it was I mean, it's a silly thing, but 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 it was a, 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 a bizarre scene that never played out anywhere else. I mean, in New Orleans, there were they were there were riots and, and and cops on horseback trying to 
make sure the kids don't invade the stage. In Cleveland, they shut the, sh- shut the show down and then uh, brought the Iron Curtain down. Mm-hmm. And then they lifted it again after Derek Taylor asked everybody not to, to stay in their seats. So the Hollywood Bowl was, was, known, was so familiar with me because of the swimming, because everybody tried to do um, a Mark Spitz. And Mark Spitz, for those who don't know, was this great Olympic uh, gold-winning uh, American swimmer. So they all tried to swim to the Beatles, which was ridiculous. And there, and, and during the concert, security men fished out these young women soaking wet. And it was it was just a surreal scene at the Hollywood Bowl. I, I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be there. You know, it's it's it, it was it was screaming and swimming, screaming and swimming. That should have been the tagline yeah. for the album that came out. They, they could have done it, yeah. Well, and the other thing was, when the album came out, as you probably know, because you're obviously a good student of the Beatles, was the sound system was absolutely appalling. Mm-hmm. It, the first time they did it, the sound system was so bad, and yet, with the miracle of the studio and the miracle of what they can do to retrieve sound and take out all the, the crappy, uh, aggravating noises, mm-hmm they were able to bring out an album. I don't know how they did it, but with high tech um, sounds and stuff like that, because because I, I don't know if I mentioned, as soon as the concert began, the Beatles started singing, the girls started screaming, and I couldn't hear a word. I mean, as I said to you earlier, I wondered, I want to hold you or whatever. But the Beatles did every song. They did their, their every concert was exactly the same. Same songs. Same, same time, same finishing with Long Tall Sally. Um, but the Hollywood Bowl was uh, amazing because of the aquatics. <laughs> um, so after 1965 and 66, <clears throat> if you saw them. Yeah, 66, yeah. What did you, you know... What was your experience with their music after that as kind of a separate entity from them? Like, would you have considered yourself a fan of their music? Well, I, I mean, I'm not a musicologist like Ken um, or many of the other people, but I'll tell you this. My evaluation, I mean, I like rock and roll. I like Bill Haley and the Comets, Elvis Presley and all the usual ones of the period. But, but my observation was that the Beatles music back in 64 in the early days was, was what I call lollipop music. I mean, I want to hold your hand. She loves me. Yeah. 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 Not exactly um, brilliant, brilliantly done, but popular. And then fortunately, as you know, and as all Beatles fans know, George Martin started working his magic. And then when I, when I heard Sergeant Pepper, the Sgt. Pepper album. I mean, that was a, a, a tremendously different uh, r- recording. And the Beatles were so far from uh, what they were back in 64 and 63 in, in, in Sgt. Pepper that it was it was a completely different thing. And then, of course, you know, George Martin put in uh, violins and cellos and orchestral stuff. So, in my opinion, their music became so much more sophisticated the more the more they did and the other thing i'll add 
is that John told me that he didn't want to do any more touring because he said they come to see us, not to hear us, and we want to be heard. And so uh, by wanting to be heard, their music, uh, particularly, as I say, the album Sgt. Pepper, which is so uh, diverse. I mean, when I'm 64, um, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the great stuff there makes such a, is so different to the, the early Beatle stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm going to jump forward ahead a few years here. Um, 1980. I want to know how you found out and how you felt when you'd heard that John Lennon was shot. <clears throat> well, like everybody else, it was a shock. But I want to tell you, I'm a journalist. I've been a journalist, a foreign correspondent pretty well all my life. And I just thought, how, what a waste. But I thought, in my career, I've covered the murder of John Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King, um, and then I was at the kitchen in the kitchen when Bobby well, Kennedy I'm gonna was assassinated. I'm going to bring that up in a bit. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, so, I, I mean, what a waste of, 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 of talent, of human life. Uh, and, and you know, you, you wonder, you say, is this only in America? I felt angry. Uh, and upset. Uh, I mean, I, I got to know John. I mean, I never knew John Kennedy personally, but I did know Bobby Kennedy personally. And so, you know, it's like, here we go again. So the shock and horror is there, but it's a kind of awful, awful deja vu. Um, and to transition out of the Beatles, because you've done a lot of, you've done a lot besides the Beatles. Um, as a bit of the segue, I've never understood fully what the Beatles-Manson connection is. Could you please explain to me what this whole helter-skelter thing was? Well, as a, as a foreign correspondent, um, I covered the Beatles, as, as, as we've been talking about. And from day one, I covered the murder of Sharon Tate and all the others, uh, which took place in August 1969. And as a journalist, I covered the trial, I, I covered the, the case. I, like many people, wondered who had killed these innocent people. And then they arrested a guy called Charles Manson in December of 1969. And, and they told me that Charles Manson lived at the Spahn Movie Ranch, which was only... 20 minutes, 30 minutes from where I lived. And I thought, well, I've got to find out who this guy is, you know, get some background. So I, off I went to the Spahn Movie Ranch, which was a decrepit movie ranch that had seen its finest day. Mm -hmm. And living on the ranch were a bunch of Manson family members who were not, not involved in the murders. Those involved in the murders were in jail awaiting trial. Mm -hmm. So I show up at the ranch and I start to talk to two guys, one called Paul Watkins and another called Brooks Poston, who were Manson devotees until they became disenchanted with him. And they had come back to the ranch to see what was going on. Mm -hmm. They were not around during the murders. And we sat down, I sat down with them, and they told me this amazing story about Manson feeding, um, brainwashing his young women devotees um, about, would you believe, 
with Beatle White Album music. And these guys told me this. They believed it. They said, well, Charlie said, revolution, piggies, helter-skelter, were messages from the Beatles to him, warning him of a race riot. Mm -hmm. And there were, I mean, when I heard that, <clears throat> when I heard that, I thought, this is insane. Yeah. These guys, these guys have been taking too much acid, too much LSD. So I didn't want to say, I thought this is a, this is a bunch of utter baloney. So I sat there for three days listening to this amazing story about the Beatles, the White Album, Manson brainwashed his, his devotees with white with, with the Beatle music, the songs I'd mentioned. Uh, and I thought, this is rubbish, absolute garbage. And then 50 years ago next week, 50 years ago next week, I sat in a courtroom in Los Angeles and the district attorney, assistant district attorney, Vincent Bugliosi, stood up and said, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, here is the motive for the murders. Charles Manson brainwashed his devotee killers into believing that the Beatles' songs from the White Album were a message of murder and of coming revolution. And I thought, has the district attorney lost his sense? And yet, believe it or not, as the world knows, the jury swallowed that motive. Mm -hmm. they, they said, okay, they agreed with it. And Manson and his gang were convicted of first degree murder. And even to this day, I mean, I don't know how it happened. It did happen. It's crazy. Did he brainwash them? And we know that the Beatles music was not a secret message to Charles Manson. Yeah. I mean, when I mentioned it to John years later and Paul, I mean, they just, they did what, they, they dismissed it beyond belief, as beyond belief. So there you have it. It's, it's uh, uh, insane. Uh, John said, well, you know, what's, what's this got to do with stabbing people? It was, it was an insane motive, and yet they, it was used, and, and it was successfully used to convict. So that's the basis of, uh, of the White Album. And I, I want to tell you this. Recently, I spoke, like in the last two months, to a woman called Diane Lake, who was 14 when she was turned over to Manson and was not involved in the murders. And Diane Lake said to me, Charlie played us the Beatles music five or six times, the album five or six times a day. And we believe that. We believe that the Beatles were sending him messages. So there you go. It's, I mean, this happened two months ago when I spoke to Diane Lake. So it's, it's, it's beyond belief, and yet it's what the facts are. Mm -hmm. So I want to transition into talking about Charles Manson and your coverage of the Manson murders. Because in 1969, you, you co-wrote Five to Die, the first book ever published about the Sharon Tate murders. I did. And, 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 and I'll, I'll say this. Um, since then, I've done a new book, by the way, which is, came out last year, called Manson Exposed, 
a, a, a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder, which is just out on audiobook, and I excuse the blatant plug, oh, but you are free to plug anything. Well, my the audio book on the Manson murders is 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 terrific because I don't I don't read it, but there's a very good actor, Englishman who did read it, and it's 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 a it's fascinating when you're jogging on the beach or walking in the forest or or climbing the mountains of Toronto if there are mountains outside Toronto. Anyway, there are not. Are there mountains? They're not. Okay, sorry about that. We we'll just forget what I just said about the mountains. It's of Toronto. okay. I could make some mountains in Toronto. Good. Okay. Well, would you do that before you broadcast yes, this, please? Of course. If you, if possible, if you, if, if you have time. If I have the time. So where, where was I now, Ethan? I um, uh, um You were plugging oh, yeah. so, your new so book. 19, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so my old book was called Five to Die, um, written very quickly, written before the trial, and then after the trial, years after the trial, I met a district attorney who was very involved in the case. His name was Aaron Stovitz. He was he was the boss of the trial, except he got fired by the district attorney for talking to the media. And Aaron said to me, you know, we, me and Vince Bugliosi, took the Manson stuff from your book and we decided that that was the, that was the motive that we were going to use um, based on Helter Skelter, based on all those songs and indeed as i say so he said that's where we got the idea to do it now you know this sounds horribly self-serving but it's a true conversation i had with aaron stovitz about the the the, the case and the trial so so there it is i mean you know you had to come up with a, a motive and and then he and, and supposedly they came up with that motive from from the story i've just told mm -hmm. you and uh, I was told something by someone that your book was so authoritative on the Manson murders that it was actually used uh, to lock up Squeaky Fromm. Well, I, I wouldn't actually say that. Um, what actually happened was during the in the pre-trial, and as I say, 50 years ago this month, the trial began. Um, and I, I'll say this, that that before the trial began, the uh, the defense, Manson's defense defense lawyer came in with my book and gave it to the judge and said, this, is, this means that my client cannot get a fair trial because, you know, it's, it's laid out in this book. And the judge looked at the book and said, um, overruled, we're going to continue with the trial in Los Angeles. We're not moving it to another community. So uh, after that, as I say, they went ahead and, and they used the motive and, and, and they got a success. And the trial went on for nearly a year. And it was a flying circus experience because Manson and the girls behaved in a crazy fashion. And by the way, I'll just say this. Beginning Sunday, July the 26th on the epics tv channel there is a magnificent uh six-part documentary running over six weeks uh called uh, helter skelter the manson myth that is airing that 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 goes into the beatles stuff 
that goes into the trial. And I mention it because I know that because I'm also in the in the in the documentary. So it, it's on Epics, which is a channel that you probably have to buy or rent or pay for monthly, not a huge amount. And it begins this summer. And it's well worth it if you want to look at the Beatles and Manson and all that stuff. So another promotion for somebody else's movie made by a brilliant filmmaker named Leslie Chilcott, who won an Oscar for the movie um, uh, An Inconvenient Truth uh, about um, about the environment. Anyway, uh, we've got a little bit off, off track, but that um, that sort of led to any of the, your, your listeners that want to see a, a terrific documentary series about the Manson case and the Beatles. And the thing about you when I was researching that I found the most fascinating was I, I'll start a sentence and I think you'll be able to tell where I'm going with it. In 1968, you were covering the U.S. presidential election and uh, you know you were long story short you were in the room well yeah yeah in the room um in 1968 i was assigned to cover the man that the, the london thought would become the next president of the united states robert kennedy bobby kennedy and I went with him through California because California was an important, uh, had a lot of electoral votes. And, um, uh, and and for a moment, I have a what they call a senior moment. He was he was fight. He was co combating Eugene McCarthy. Sorry, it came back to me. And Eugene McCarthy was very popular. But Bobby Kennedy had to win California to be nominated for the Democratic Party as president in 1968 and after a huge three or four days across back and back and forth through california we ended up back at the ambassador hotel in los angeles for the vote count and at like midnight 11 o'clock bobby kennedy was named winner and bobby kennedy said and i remember this we were following him i was dogging his footsteps. He said, I'll see you all in Chicago for the convention because it meant that Bobby would become the nominee. Bobby would be the one who was going to be running for the Democrats as president. Yes. Moments, uh, we followed him and he was going to have a press conference. We followed him like 10 paces behind and he was going to a press conference and as we walked along, Bobby took a shortcut through the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And as I followed him, I heard balloons popping. I thought they were balloons popping, five, six. And then seconds later, there was screaming. And as I pushed my way into the small kitchen of the kitchen, there was, it, it, um, the sight was unbelievable because <clears throat> on the floor, bleeding in the arms of Ethel Kennedy was Bobby Kennedy. And everybody was screaming. 
And Bar- and Ethel was saying, give him air, give him air. And it was bedlam. And just like eight feet away, there was a figure under a pile of bodies. And the figure under the pile of bodies, I couldn't tell who it was, but there was Rosie Greer, who was a football player and a bodyguard of Bobby Kennedy. And it was a scene of utter devastation and Bobby was in bad shape and people were screaming somebody said not again and it, it's one of those scenes that you will, one never forgets because it was it was horrible we didn't know how bad he was it took a few minutes and the, the guy that was under the pile of bodies turned out to be Sihan Sihan the guy who had wielded the gun and it was hell. And Bobby was quickly taken off to hospital nearby. We didn't know who had been arrested or why or anything. And we all went, immediately went to the hospital. <clears throat> and we hung around at the hospital. And then later, I think early the next morning, uh, Tom, I think it was Tom Mankiewicz, who was Bobby's press secretary, stood up and said, Bobby Kennedy passed away and he was dead. And it was just uh, an awful night and one that you uh, never, never forget. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the man who was going to be the candidate for the Democrats was no longer alive. And that was it. I can't even imagine what that would have felt like for you, you know, even if it wasn't, you know, Bobby Kennedy, seeing someone get shot in front of you. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know, you, 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 look, I was with, I was with uh, my uh, photographer called Harry Benson, a famous photographer. And Harry had been shooting pictures of Bobby and on the road, we'd all become friendly with Bobby. And Harry was a few steps ahead of me. And it's hard to imagine, but Harry then jumped on the metal kitchen table and started taking pictures. So, and, and, and you know, when, we, when Harry and I talk about it, uh, he says, well, uh, you know, he's a, he was a Scotsman. He said, I was doing my job. I was just doing my job. That was I was there for the to, to take the pictures, <laughs> and his pictures are iconically awful, beautiful, horrible, and you know, you 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 are in shock, but at the same time, you know that you have to do your job as a reporter. And I think many great reporters around the world, when they see these scenes of devastation and death and bloodshed. They, they they kind of wear a different coat and they don't realize what has happened until much later. And I think that was that was me in a way. Uh, it wasn't until... I mean, I, I'll add one footnote to that. I was so caught up in the moment that my wife, Sally, who was watching it all on television in a friend's house in Beverly Hills, who I was supposed to pick up 
after the Bobby Kennedy acceptance speech or Bobby Kennedy victory speech, I forgot about her. And she was worried. I didn't call her. We didn't have cell phones in those days. And then like about three hours later, I thought, oh, my God, my wife is stranded at a friend's house. I better do something about it. But so that shows you one's crazy state of mind. Uh, I want to take things back a couple years previously. 1962, uh, the University of Mississippi. Yeah, well, um, 1962, University of Mississippi. A big story. James Meredith yes. was was supposed to be the first Negro, because that's what they referred to, not blacks, Negro, ever enlisted in the university uh, 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 Old Miss in Oxford, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. It was a big story, so I went to cover that. Now, I knew that I wanted to see him escorted onto the campus. Mm-hmm. So I was much younger then than I am now, and I looked like a student. So I thought they weren't letting the press on. So I walked on and and I met a couple of students, told them what I was doing. They said, well, then, you know, you can come and stay with us in the dorm. You'll have to sleep on the floor. And so I posed as a student to get into Ole Miss so that I was there the day that James Meredith was escorted by, I mean, it's hard to believe, I think 500 U.S. Marshals. Mm-hmm. That, that had been sent to Old Miss to keep the peace by Bobby Kennedy, who was then Attorney General under John Kennedy. <laughs> well, the interesting thing was that after Meredith was enrolled, the locals went crazy and there were riots. There was a couple of deaths. A guy called um, uh, General Edwin Walker was the general military general that brought the troops in. And when the troops came in, and students and other people rioted. There were burnings. As I say, there was one journalist that was shot, uh, a fellow English journalist, would you believe, I think from the London Daily Sketch. And it was bedlam on the campus again with the rioting, the, the, the cops and the, the soldiers trying to keep the peace. I, I saw people setting fires to cars. And it was... Again, another insane time in American uh, racial history. What? And I was I was there, and and just by by pure chance, or the fact that I was a journalist trying to get the story. In any of these uh, situations in your long career, have you ever uh, feared for your life in any of these? <clears throat> I'll tell you a quick story before. Um, I think before I went to see Elvis Presley with the Beatles, and I, that was that was year sixty-five, yeah. I think it was. Um, there were riots in Los Angeles called the Watts riots, and again, there was the kind of thing that one is seeing in the year twenty twenty: mm-hmm. looting, shooting, bloodshed, cops trying to arrest people. And it was a big four, three or four days of rioting. And the 
the aforementioned photographer Harry Benson, who was in the kitchen with me with Bobby Kennedy, flew in from New York in the middle of the rioting. And Harry said, and I picked Harry up. If, if, if anybody wants to see Harry Benson shoot first, a brilliant documentary about the life of Harry Benson. I think it was a, an Oscar nominee. Anyway, it's a great documentary. Shoot first. Sorry, Harry Benson, shoot first. So Harry Benson arrives at LA airport. I pick him up. He said, take me to the riots. So I take him to the riots. I drive straight into the middle of Watts. Harry is like the invisible man. He jumps out, starts to take pictures. There are snipers shooting on the rooftop. I am scared out of my mind. <laughs> I hide in the gutter and Harry dances around like a, like a ballet dancer taking pictures as if he is untouchable. <laughs> and I say, Harry, you're going to get me killed. And finally, after 10 minutes, Harry jumps back into my car and we make a fast getaway. And that was the only time I really thought that I could have got a bullet in my brain. But uh, fortunately, I'm still here. And fortunately, you're still here. And fortunately, you're on this show. Thank you. Um, I want to ask you, you've done a lot of interviews over the years. What, <laughs> out of all of the interviews I think you've ever done, which is your favorite that you've? <clears throat> well, um, uh, two interviews come to mind. One of them with, is with a, um, a chap named Muhammad Ali. Oh, him. Yeah. Remember yep. him? Ca Cassius Clay. Floats like a butterfly, and stings like a bee. That's the one. That's the same one. I mean, what a great character he was. And the reason I went to see him was he was starring in a movie. I think it was called Gideon's... Oh, I can't remember what Gideon. He played a slave called Gideon. Um, so I ended up spending three or four days with him in L.A. And it was a wonderful experience because he was a great talker. He never was short of words. And he was an icon. And the funniest story I like to tell about that was he decided to he had a, a convertible Rolls Royce and him and his wife jumped in the front seat and I am in the back seat and I have a picture to prove it. And he drives me around LA to show me his neighborhood. Well, I want to tell you in an open convertible Rolls Royce with Muhammad Ali at the wheel in heavy traffic, drivers are almost crashing because they say, look who that is. And so we come to a traffic light, and I'll tell you this, in the middle of Wilshire Boulevard, in the middle of the rush hour, with heavy traffic both directions, Ali comes to a stop at a traffic light. And coming in the opposite direction is a gigantic a garbage truck. And the guys, the two guys in the garbage truck see Ali. They stop in the middle of this busy intersection. They jump out of their truck, they rush over to Ali. He gets out the car. He hugs them. They talk for a few minutes. The cars behind and in front and at the side are booting because this large garbage truck has blocked the whole street. But this was the kind of 
adoration <laughs> that people had for Ali. And I remember getting saying, oh, my God, let's get out of this. And the guys got back in their truck, but they met Ali. They'd hugged him. And it was a, a scene that, again, that, that one doesn't forget. So that was a terrific, a terrific experience. And I'm just thinking, I've, I've interviewed many other people. Um, I, I know there was an actor by the name of Paul Newman. And when I, when I did a class at college not long ago, I asked the young students, uh, do you know Paul Newman? Do you know what he's known for? And uh, one guy said, oh, he's the man that makes the salad dressing. Well, he was right. Paul Newman does have a salad dressing, but he's also a brilliant yeah. actor. Um, and, and you know, I mean, with all due respect, you ask next time you're with a, a bunch of peers um, there, um, mm -hmm. Ethan, you ask your pals, who is Paul Newman? And then let me know what they say. I, I will certainly do that. Yeah. And, and will they say he's the guy on the, on the salad dressing? Anyway, the long story short, I went to Mexico on Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid to talk to Paul Newman because he was supporting Senator Eugene McCarthy. And he and I hit it off. And we went out for drinks. And that night, uh, he and I shared a, a bottle of Courvoisier brandy. And I want to tell you that after drinking with Paul Newman, I was flat on my back Paul seemed okay the next morning I went on location feeling like death warmed up and Paul Newman was there looking bright and breezy and I said Paul I mean I was in I was in terrible shape last night and today he said well I my secret is I if I drink a lot I, I go into the jacuzzi and uh, not the jacuzzi the, the sauna and, and sweat it out so uh, it's, it's a tip I've always used, although in later life, I don't drink as much as I used to. And, and, and that's two people who, who are very memorable among, among the crowd. Uh, I'm going to kind of revert things back to the Beatles because I want to ask you, what do the Beatles mean to you? Well, the funny thing is, at the time that I covered the Beatles, they were just another story. At the time I covered the Beatles, I didn't think they would last more than five years and neither did they. So as soon as I finished my five to six weeks on the road with the Beatles, I got back to LA and the office called me the next day. And I remember they said, the Warren Commission report is in, we need you to do a report. And then I went so, sometime after that to interview um, uh, the district attorney, Jim Garrison, who claimed to me that he'd solved the Kennedy murder. Anyway, I forgot what the question was. The Beatles. What do okay. they mean to you? So, so, okay. Well, at the time, it was another great story, and I never really thought about it. And in fact, it, when my kids were growing up, if you were to talk to them, I, I probably would have said, well, I traveled with the Beatles, and I dismissed that in the same way that I would uh, talk about maybe Muhammad Ali or any of my interviews with any of the, you know, Ronald Reagan. Um, I didn't, they weren't that impactful. And then suddenly I would say 10 years ago, uh, I decided 
because people, when I went to dinner, used to say, oh, tell me more about the Beatles. And I think, well, okay, it's another story. They've come, become very popular. I did interview Ringo much later, in Paul, New Paul McCartney. Not Paul Newman. Um, no, Paul Newman and Paul McCartney, not together. <coughs> so, Have you ever seen uh, Paul so Newman way, and Paul what? McCartney in the same room? Um, in, in a word, we can no. We can't verify that they're not the same person. Now, well, they could be. And also, Paul. it could have been Paul Newman who, who was a Paul McCartney clone. Yes. Because we all know that Paul wasn't really the guy yes. that I met in 64, Of course, because he died in that car crash. Because he, he, he died in that car crash. Um, another story that some people follow, but I can tell you this, that the Paul McCartney I met in 1964, and then when he, when he, when he was married to Linda and, and, and came up for an Oscar for his Live and Let Die movie, and then I met Paul nine months ago, at the um, San Diego Petco Stadium for his concert. That was the same guy I met in 64, and he is not a fake. Mm -hmm. So I, I can say that with some authority. That Paul is not anyway, dead. Where, where were we? Oh, yeah. That what? Paul is not that dead. Paul, right. Definitely. I, I mean, I saw him nine months ago, and he's still around mm -hmm. doing a terrific show. Three hours on stage by himself with the group with a great mm -hmm. group with 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 fan you know have you seen have you have you seen any of his shows I, i've seen them twice so far okay in live yes. right three hours and 15 how minutes. does he do it you tell me how does he do it he has a great backup group i must tell you a quick story i, w I was very fortunate to go backstage and talk to him so i said paul you know when when we were on the road, we were on the road, it sounds rather propriety, proprietary. Um, you had Neil and you had Mal and you had, uh, even in the early days, you'd had this, this beat up old car with no back seat. Mm -hmm. I said, when you travel around the world, um, Paul, um, do you have more than two roadies? He said, well, we have 92 people on, on the team, 92 and we travel around the world in the jumbo jet. And I thought, you've come a long way, baby. Anyway, so, that, so I've forgotten where we were, but, um, uh, or, or even what the question was, but um, because I, I go off on side streets yeah. and- The question was lost. just, what do they mean to you now? Well, you know, I listen to every Sunday morning, Chris Carter, Breakfast with the Beatles, <laughs> and I enjoy the stories and I enjoy their music and 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 I enjoy appreciating the fact that their body of music is absolutely phenomenal. I mean just look at just look at the the songs, look at the music, look at what they they have turned out. But I'll tell you this, on the tour in nineteen sixty four, I often saw John and Paul writing on the floor of their suite, uh, wherever we were. And the reason they were writing so frantically was that Brian Epstein had a commitment that, that I mean, they had, they came back from the uh, American tour in 1964 in September. <laughs> they had October and November to write enough songs, new songs for a Brian Epstein 
commissioned um, new album. So they had to write on the road and they wrote on the road. They wrote in the hotel <laughs> and, and their, their output is, I mean, I forget the number of songs you probably know. It's, it's in the and, and, you know, I think late 200. Ken Womack knows. Ken what? Womack knows. How many? Yeah. Ken knows. I mean, look at the, look at the output. It is, it is phenomenal. Sure. There's other great, great um, people who've written a lot of songs, but the Beatles output is almost beyond belief together separately. And when they went their separate ways, when Paul went with the, with wings and all the rest of it and george did his thing and ringo is still doing it ringo's still bringing <laughs> out new stuff so you know even today uh, i want to ask you what is your favorite beatles song <clears throat> my favorite beatles song is uh i love uh i think it was in 1970 um and and, and i love working class hero by <laughs> john it's not a Beatles song, it's a John yes. song. And I love it because it's John. <laughs> I mean, he was a working class hero. And also I know the background to that because uh, because in 1970, I think it was, yeah, uh, John and Yoko went to Los Angeles and underwent primal therapy. Like scream therapy. And I know about that. Because I, what, what, what's Wasn't that? it like scream therapy? Yeah. Basically, and I did a big story on it uh, at the time, not at the time, years later. And, and Art Janoff was the guy who was the, the person that came up with primal therapy. I mean, what you did was you went into this nursery and you were reborn. And, I, and to be honest with you, I think it was just another trend. But for John, it worked very well because he and Yoko did it. John was reborn and he did this. Um, this, uh, I think it was the Plastic Ono yeah. band or something like Plastic that. Plastic Ono band. Okay, okay. So yeah, so he did it, and I love I love Working Class Hero because it's it's guttural, it's savage, and it and it hits close to the skin and and the bones of John Lennon. So that that's really my favorite Lennon song. But, but he didn't do it with the Beatles, did he? So it's not really a question of, you know, a song with the Beatles. Um, and, you know, they've all gone their separate ways and done great stuff. I mean, I think Yesterday by Paul is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it is wonderful. And and was it My Sweet Lord that George yeah. did? Um, yeah. And, and um, you know, when I see Ringo perform, and I'm sure you've seen Ringo perform, haven't you, with the All-Star yeah. Band? I mean, Ringo is very clever. First of all, he looks like he's... I mean, can you believe Ringo is yeah, 80? Yeah, he just turned 80. Yeah. He just turned 80 and he looks 79. No, he looks much, much younger. He looks, I mean... Uh, and, and he looks in good shape. He gets a, a trainer into his L.A. home every day to keep him in shape. But still, he's great and he's turning out new stuff. So they're all... Uh, quite remarkable in, in what they've done. They've all proven that they're talents in their own right. So I don't know if that kind of answers your, your that question. That answers the question very well. And I just want to say, this is my last question. Um, I've asked you a bunch of questions. I'm sure you've been asked each one of these before at some point. I want to 
I want to hear from you one thing that you have not said on any other show that this could be like the first time anyone has heard of this. Okay. Um, well, um, I, I tell you, it, it's a tough one to say, uh, and it isn't it isn't too profound, but it but it's it's recent in my memory, and what it is is this: when I went backstage to see Paul nine months ago at the Petco Stadium in San Diego, I was very lucky to chat with him, and what I thought was 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 very nice was. Um, it was a crowded dressing room. The manager was saying, Paul, pointing to his watch. And Paul said, okay, don't worry about it. I'm going to keep talking. And then at that moment, his wife, Nancy, came over. Now, we all knew who Nancy was. But I thought it was charming of Paul to say, oh, Nancy, uh, Ivor, and I was with a, a great photographer, um, also a friend of Paul, Paul introduced Nancy to us as if as if he had to, you know, come on. You know, if you follow the Beatles, you know that his wife, and he did it rather, rather proudly. He was showing her off. Yeah. And I thought, I thought that was a nice touch. And it showed uh, that he's still pretty human. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, it sounds silly to say that he's not human, but but you know, Paul was always the slickest one, the the, the most, uh, um, you know, the the one the one that had style and a bit of class, and then he's kept it. And to introduce your wife to somebody who obviously is, he knows it's your wife, I thought showed that he that he still has this. He's not he's not grandiloquent. He's not he's not grandiose. He's not full of himself. <laughs> And that was a nice little touch. And I've never actually mentioned that little niblet, that little thing to anyone before, except World you. exclusive. World yes. exclusive. Anyways, now it's my favorite part of the show where I get to turn it over to you. What would you like to plug? <clears throat> well, I'd like to plug, um, I mean, the good, the good thing is two things. Oh, three things. Okay, so let me keep very, very quickly. My, my, the Beatles and me on tour. If I, I looked at it again the other day, and actually I quite liked it. There's some fun stories that I haven't had the chance to tell you about the Beatles and Jane Mansfield and the Beatles and other people. So, so the Beatles and me on tour, which is my book about the Beatles. And then um, about uh, 18 months ago, I bought out a children's book. <laughs> which was called Ladies and Gentlemen, the Penguins. And it was about four penguins from the British Falkland Islands. It's a kid's book. British Falkland Islands who want to become rock stars. And these penguins do become rock stars called the Penguins. <laughs> and they actually are so big that they go to New York to perform on the Ed Pelican Show. And their first big hit in the record world is I want to hold your flipper. So you can see where I'm going yes. with this. So it's kind of a tongue in cheek kids book called ladies and gentlemen, the penguins. So that that's, is awesome. That's a fun book. 
yeah, that's a fun book I did, and I and and it and it, it's because I went to the Falkland Islands where most of the people it's an English island. Most of the people are English, but there are more penguins than people. So I decided to do that one for fun, mainly for my grandkids. And and finally, there's the book which is from start to finish, fifty years of of my experiences and story of, of the Manson case from day one until the very end, until up to date. It's a, it's a, a sort of an interesting book, uh, some great stuff in there, stuff I've never written before, um, called Manson Exposed, the reporter's 50-year journey into ma madness and murder, interviews with Roman Polanski, Terry Melcher, and other key figures of the Manson era. So that's about it. And where can people find you? You can find me on Amazon. You can buy my new audio book on the Manson murders, which just came out, also on Amazon. And all the books, unfortunately, are on Amazon because they shall inherit the world. I mean, yes. they're kings. They named a forest and, um, after them, you know? They did. Oh, yeah. They, no, it was a jungle that they named after yeah. them, didn't they? In Brazil. <laughs> A Brazilian jungle. Yeah. Very good. And I've been there before, but that's another story. Oh, God. This this was just so fun. Good. I enjoyed it. You you know, you really, uh, Ethan, covered the waterfront. And I enjoy covering the waterfront because, as you know, I can go on talking nonstop <laughs> until people fall asleep, until my, my grandkids say, Dad, Grandpa, forget it. Well, hope. We heard that story. Hopefully before. I haven't asked you questions that you've heard a billion, billion times before. No, I, I've enjoyed our conversation because we've, we've jumped all over the place. And um, as you can see, I kind of enjoy talking about it. Um, uh, although, as I say, my grandkids said, oh, not again. But anyway, they have to live eh? with me. And most people most, most people don't. So that's that's the, the, the bonus of listening eh? to me. If but you ever listen, want to tell your stories Ethan, uh, and your grandkids don't want to listen, you have my email address. Thank you so much. I'll remember yeah. that. Thank you very much and, and have a great week. And, this, and the important thing is stay well. Thank you. Thank you, I, for all the best. And Ethan. to everyone else out Pleasure. there, thank you for listening to the show. You can go home now. Night, night. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.